This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week we are covering Mistborn, The Final Empire, chapters 32 and 33. Just a couple of quick announcements before we get into those chapters. The first being that we are working on finalizing our lineup of 2024 authors. So we should be able to announce the schedule for next year very soon, but we've got some exciting new books in the works that we are really eager to be able to cover and share with you all. So definitely follow us on our social media pages if you aren't already. That being said, please continue to follow us with our coverage of The Fear of Montcroy by Brian Asher as we continue to delve into this gothic horror adventure story with him each week. And then one I guess three announcements for the book world. Three big books are coming out and Sam has been talking about them in our house nonstop. So I'm going to let him take over. It is a good time to be a fantasy reader. I am so excited. The three books that are coming out this week are Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros. And this is a sequel story to her critically acclaimed fourth wing novel. We also have... Murta by Christopher Paolini, and I have been counting down the days for this book's release. I am so excited. I grew up with Aragon in the Inheritance series, and I am just so excited. I'm going to stay up all night reading this. <laughs> Thirdly... Oh, and this one should really interest our listeners. Yes. Patrick Rothfuss's book... The Narrow Road Between Desires releases November 14th, and I am very excited to get a story more focused on Bast and his journey, and maybe some snippets that we might be able to piece together that could be linked to the current Kavoth timeline. I am pretty excited about it. It's a novella just like the Slow Slow Regard of Silent Things. (laughs) Thanks. Forgot the title there for a second. And it is based on the short story that he already published about Bast called The Lightning Tree. It's an expansion of that story. That's a story that Sam and I have been really having a tough time getting our hands on. So the fact that he is expanding upon it and elaborating on it in this new book, The Narrow Road Between Desires, is something that I have been so excited to read. And I am just really, really excited about it. I know I just said excited like five times, but... Our podcast was built on Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear, so the fact that we're getting more in the Kingkiller Chronicles universe is huge. I'm not going to hold my breath for the third book just because this one has come out, but it does give me hope that Patrick Rothfuss is writing again, and I know we're going to definitely be covering that on the podcast too. Oh yes, I will be certainly be covering coverage on Murtaugh for my Aragon fans. As I said earlier, it is... Such a great time to be a fantasy reader. With the holidays approaching, I feel just giddy with that childlike (laughs) excitement as so many good stories are becoming available. Um, We just had daylight savings too, so it's the perfect time of year to just cuddle up with a book on a 
dark, cozy night and read. I feel so reinvigorated with reading right now. It's so just awesome. Well, you were on a Brandon Sanderson kick for a while, too. So I think the fact that you've got even more books coming out by other authors, you have been reading. Like, every time I see you, you have your nose in a book. It feels good. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, I think it is time for us to get into Mistborn. Chapter 32. I think the blurb at the beginning of this chapter is a little bit more world-buildy than it is providing history about the Lord Ruler and the Well of Ascension. He's talking about how the Terracemen resent Clenium, which is where Elendi is from, I believe. He talks about the Clenny cathedrals with their stained glass windows and broad halls, and I can only assume that those are now the Great House Keeps, many, many centuries later repurposed. And then he also talks about the Clenny fashion. So he says terracemen are trading in their traditional clothing for gentlemen's suits. So it's sort of this meshing of cultures, I guess almost like colonialism a little bit, or like blending of one dominant culture into the one that it's subjecting. But I think it just gives you a little bit of tidbit about how where they're living currently, I think, was Clenium in the past, where Credit Shaw is now, right? I will say nothing. (laughs) All right, fine. Am I even remotely close? No. Oh. What? (laughs) Okay, wow. I really thought that I had put two and two together there. With the the cathedrals being the keeps? (sighs) Darn. You're just going to have to uh, wait and see what Brandon Sanderson does throughout this trilogy with the lore in the world building, in the great Sanderlanch, where we learn why everything is the way that it is, is awesome. Okay, cool. I think that's, again, another reason why I really want to finish reading the books, but I I guess I'll just put that little blurb aside for now because I'm apparently incorrect. So I'm surprised by that. But what's happening in this chapter, and as we get closer to the end of the book, is that... Brandon Sanderson starts to wrap up some side plots. So the beginning of this chapter, we get a little bit more wrapping up of the house wars. So we're starting to see the keeps falling. Yes, keep hasting is out. Yeah, like literally getting destroyed. Soldiers are attacking. It's kind of funny. Vin and Spook are watching this from a rooftop and they mention that none of this fighting goes on during the day. There's sort of an unspoken agreement and a a gentleman's politeness about the whole house war. And then as soon as nightfall comes, all bets are off. I don't know if it's a way to keep up appearances or if it's a way to pretend to the Lord Ruler that this house war is not going on. But so far, the Lord Ruler has turned a blind eye and the houses are really getting deep into each other, destroying one another. Many have pulled out of the city, so it is well underway. Yeah, It's hitting the fan for sure. Uh One thing I do find interesting and very strategic among the Steel Ministry and the Lord Ruler is that they aren't supporting any of these great houses because it's way better and more advantageous for him to maintain control of the great houses when they weaken themselves. Right. It's actually a really smart tactic. Obviously, the Lord Ruler needs his nobles. And the nobles need him, but he doesn't want them to get too powerful. So if he just lets them cripple each other, he can maintain ultimate power on his own. 
a wise and crafty one. <laughs> Definitely. We also get this conclusion to the Vin spook romance, I guess. One-sided romance. Yeah, it's... He was just pining for her, and she very graciously and gently lets him know it's not in the cards. And I love that she uses the line Kelsier has used throughout this book when speaking about Mare, where she says, you can't help who you love. Spook receives this and takes the news very well. He's an interesting character because he's very introspective. Although he has his Eastern Street dialect, characters in the story sometimes write him off as not being as intelligent, but he he understands a lot of things. And so he responds to Vin and says that he understands and that, you know, he's not a fool. He knows that it wasn't going to happen. And there's a really simple line that he just says, I see things, Vin. I see lots of things. It plays well because he is a Tenai, so he has enhanced senses and enhanced sight, but that's not really what he's talking about. And I think what you were saying before, where you said characters think of him as less intelligent, I think that's part of it, but I also think that they write him off because he's young, and it's also difficult for them to converse with him when he is using his street dialogue. So even at the beginning when Vin came up, you know, she was coming to hang out with Spook, but he was speaking to her in a dialogue she didn't understand. And so she's like, uh, can you speak normal? Which I think is a little bit rude, honestly, but it plays into why the characters don't always interact with Spook as much. But because of that, he is always watching and observing, and he is very smart and keen in the way he understands people. And he knew that Vin was never going to fall for him because he could see how much she was falling for Ellen. And even though... He knows that Ellen has broken things off with her. He still knows that it's a pipe dream. They're not going to be together. But this segues them into a conversation where they're talking about burning tin. And it's the final conversation that Vin gets with an Alamancer. Like, it's her last little bit of training. Because she had the meetings with Breeze and with Marsh. And, you know, everybody got their own little moment to talk to Vin about their speciality. And Spook has a really interesting piece of advice. He says, because when you're burning tin, everything is flared, all your senses are flared, it can be extremely overwhelming, and you get a lot of distractions. It's essential to pick just one thing and focus on it. Don't get distracted. Which is great advice. I think that if all of a sudden all of your senses are cranked up to 11, you're gonna get overwhelmed and bogged down. And yeah, to be able to focus on one specific thing will provide clarity and honing that skill makes you a very powerful alamancer even if certain applications may be just for observing or spying as we get more information on spook throughout the trilogy he actually becomes one of my favorite characters i really loved his character arc as the story progresses and his growth i thought it was just awesome I think you have said that multiple times and now I'm really interested to see what his character arc is because he did not get much screen time in this book. He's just sort of there as like a little bit of a foil to Vin. He's another young character in the crew. He does have his really remarkable tin eye skills and because of that they sent him off to be a lookout a lot of the times, which is actually where they are right now. 
And then Kelsier comes up to their lookout post to collect Vind. They're supposed to have their second meeting with Marsh that night. He's pretending to be scouting out a location for a soothing station for the ministry, but he's using it as a cover to go meet up with Vin and Kelsier. But on the way, Kelsier actually has a small little errand to run before they get there. Kelsier takes Vin among the Ska hovels, and she gets to see a really different side of Kelsier. Instead of the bravado, the grand illusion that he tends to surround himself with, here he's just being compassionate and kind to the Ska, trying to give them hope and resolution and strength. He's going among the Ska and giving them kind words of encouragement, a hand on the shoulder, really just allowing himself to be there for them emotionally. And this makes Vin very uncomfortable because this plays into the Lord Kelsier propaganda, making him larger than life. At this point, many of the Ska refer to him as the Lord of the Mists. There's so much mysticism around him. He's becoming larger than life. Yeah, I don't know if it's his own bravado, because I know you said he's he's calmer in these situations, but I feel like he built up his reputation so much so that now when he goes to these hovels, he's revered and almost worshipped. You and I, when we were reading it, obviously picked up on these sort of heavy religious overtones in these moments in the way that Kelsier is painting himself as a savior. And then even in his annotations, Brandon Sanderson talks about how he's pulling on Christian imagery. And it he does it in a sort of twofold way. One is to make people... Well, his goal is to make people uncomfortable with what Kelsier's doing. He wants you to feel on edge with where this is going, the same way that Vin does. But he does it in two different ways. So the first is that he says, for Christians who read this, they might be made uncomfortable by how much Kelsier is stepping in and pretending to be a Christ-like figure. Whereas people who are not religious or not Christian might kind of see him as manipulating people in a false way, the way that sometimes religions prey upon people's emotions, especially cult-like religions, and they give them a false hope for something that might not ever come true. So either way, we can see how this could make you uncomfortable. Like if you see Kelsier as a religious figure, but as someone who's built up his reputation through gossip and building up his own mythology, you see how he can be just a man who's got this mythos around him. Or you can also see the fact that like, he is, again, just a man with mythos around him. And these people are thinking he's more than he is. So their hopes could be very easily dashed if he doesn't deliver on his promises. Right. And we saw firsthand how poorly that went with Yedon and the rest of the army where they believed too heavily in Kelsier's ability to empower them, and they all ended up becoming slaughtered. So Vin, who knows Kelsier, knows that this crew of thieves, their original plan was to just steal the Atium from the Lord Ruler, now a greater mission to topple the final empire and bring a better balance to the world for the Ska to have a better life. But it's such an insurmountable goal how can a Scott thieving crew save these people, both metaphorically, spiritually, and physically? 
No, I think that's a really good point. Like, Vin does see that these are just regular people. These are thieves. These are people she knows on a personal level. They all have shortcomings and failings. Kelsier especially. We've seen how rash he can be. How loyal to a fault he can be. Where he puts his blinders up and doesn't see. We can see that he has a one-track mind a lot of the times. That's not the kind of person that you'd normally think of when you think of a holy and good religious figure. Especially how dark and violent Kelsier is at his core as well in regards to nobility. Yeah, absolutely. You make a really good point there. That he doesn't have compassion towards them at all. And even Brandon Sanderson, again in his annotation, says... The truest Kelsier is the one we see near the end of the book, where he's standing in the kitchen, smoldering in his black clothing. He's a dangerous man with powerful beliefs. And that is the kind of conviction that ends up leading his movement to become quasi-religious, but that's also very dangerous, and that can lead to like a, a cult leader or like a militia leader or just a, a terrorist even. A manipulator. You know, there's lots of different ways Kelsier's story could have gone as just somebody with very, very dangerous and powerful ideas and a lot of followers. And it's interesting you say that because we see glimpses of those types of people and characters in the second and third book. Oh, okay. I like that. This type of character is going to come back. Because you could very easily see how Kelsier... And you and I definitely felt this way when we read it the first time, was paralleling the Lord Ruler and the way he was becoming. And you and I were really convinced that Kelsey was going to end up being a villain or becoming corrupt. Yeah, I, I remember just being so concerned and genuinely feeling worried. I was, I was so, so emotionally invested that I thought this was going to be more of a story of like a fall from grace, not a classic good versus evil plot and... Almost an allegory of with great power comes great corruption every time. It definitely could have. I think, honestly, if Kelsier hadn't died at the moment he did, he would have gone too far down that path. He's too dangerous to be kept alive. <laughs> <laughs> he he was, though. Like He's yeah. getting too rash and too extreme in his actions to the point where he would start to lose followers if he hadn't died at like the exact right moment to build such a momentous following and a martyrdom for himself. I was you took the words right out of my mouth where he was too damn lovable and so he had to die in order to create such a wave of change. I was really convinced he was going to be not dead somehow at the end of the book. Like I, I don't know how that was going to happen, but Ugh, that would have taken all the sting out. I know. And normally I am all for, like, if a character is dead, they should stay dead. But I know that other Brandon Sanderson books, you can come back. Like, would we read Warbreaker? There's people who, when they, if they, they were so good in life, they get sent back as a returned, which is sort of like a demigod. So I was like, maybe he'll come back as another character. But I think you're right. I think it would have taken all of the meaning out of what he had done and out of his movement. One final thing I just wanted to say about this visit that Kelsier has is he is really trying to inspire the Ska to stand up and be more powerful on their own. And there's a great line, a great interaction he has with someone where he says, if you wish to repay me, then stand up just a little straighter, be a little less afraid. They can be beaten. And then somebody responds, 
but by men like you, Lord Kelsier, not by us. And it's so disheartening to see how well the beating down of the Ska has worked, because even though Kelsier is one of the Ska and showing them you can do it, you can stand up and be a little prouder and you can rebel, there's just no belief and hope in these people that they can do it. No. And the irony is that from Kelsier's death, all the Ska rise up and by every single one of them standing just a little bit straighter and being a little less afraid, they're responsible for creating great change and helping overthrow the final empire. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, though. Yes. Got to make that ultimate sacrifice for the Ska, his children. The greater good. (laughs) Oh, all right. We have to talk about the next part of this chapter now because... This was one of the best twists. I was not expecting it. I was not prepared for it. When Kelsier and Vin get to the meeting place with Marsh, they're climbing up the stairs. They're talking. They stop at the doorway and Kelsier sees something and just says, no. And Vin is trying to look around him and see what's behind him, but she can't. And then she sees blood running down the floor. And they are met by a disturbing sight of what they believe to be Marsh's body, flayed, so skin off, dismembered, head completely crushed. The walls are sprayed with blood. They think a Steel Inquisitor has gotten him. And little do they know Uh. that he is a Steel Inquisitor now. Now, there's a little bit of world building that's revealed later on, and I don't want to give anything away. But I'm going to make some guesses, though. clever from the line that's left here by Brandon Sanderson that Vin says, which is, could one body really produce this much blood? No, I think, okay, here's what I think. Because Steel Inquisitors have the power of Mistborn, right? They have all the abilities. Correct. But Marsh started out as somebody with just one. Mm-hmm. So I think they need one of every type of Mistborn to make a Steel Inquisitor. Every Misting? Every Misting. Sorry, not of every Mistborn. You need one of every type of Misting. Somehow combine them? I don't understand how. I don't know if it's like blood magic. I don't know if they're like zombied together because this person's missing limbs or multiple people. There's like so much carnage, it's hard to tell. You're very close to the right answer and i want to say that the spikes in the eyes are made of all the metals so that it just like is in their system and they don't have to eat metals they just have an unlimited supply but i don't know why it would have to go through their eyes and i don't know how that would work but that's my guess you're really on to something i don't want to give anything away because it's worth the read forever always gonna say it's worth the read i know i'm gonna read it i'm gonna read it (sighs) You just left me behind. You read too fast. I was just, I was on a one-way track and I couldn't (laughs) look back. It's okay. It's kind of fun now because I have to guess and you have to tell me how correct or incorrect my guesses are. (laughs) The first time we read this and I thought that Marsh was tortured for information then killed really broke my heart because I had a soft spot for him for being... The original instigator for the rebellion, 
the brother that was less popular, who loved Mare, who lost it all, and despite it all, gave everything he had for the resistance against the Lord Ruler only to die, broke my heart. But just to find out that later on, he becomes a Steel Inquisitor and is robbed of the last bit of his humanity is even worse. I was going to say, I think it's even worse. He is essential to the plot in his new role and helping Vin in the very final moments of the book. But it's a really crappy fate for his character. Like He's just had the... The short end of the stick every time, and then this is just, like, the worst possible thing that could have happened to him. Because there's no going back. Truly bad things happening to good people. Yeah. Seeing all this absolute destruction and bloody violence, Kelsier is distraught. (laughs) He does not know what he is seeing. He's having a hard time reacting. Vin, however, realizes because they think this is an Inquisitor attack, that the Inquisitor could be nearby still. She tells him to escape out the window, and she actually grabs a wooden table leg, i.e. the tool that they were using to smuggle the maps and notes back and forth, and gets it, and they run. To be fair, brilliant, quick thinking on Vin's part, but also imagine how terrifying that must be. Pitch black room... Your brother essentially destroyed horrifically. Turned to pulp. Like, gross. Only to know that there could be one of those Inquisitors lurking around at that moment. Terrifying. Like, out of a horror movie. I was going to say, that's like haunted house level scary. And the fact that even though they're both very accomplished and misborn. No, no, no. You can't. You cannot fight one of those things. Terrifying. I know Kelsier fights them later, but it's such a dangerous enemy. You have to get out of there. But then you spiral and unravel, and Kelsier is cognitive enough to recognize that, okay, chances are Marsh cracked. All the info got revealed. We have to abandon the shop, get everyone out, disperse, backup shop, let's go. Yeah, Marsh did leave a note in the table leg that Dachshund reads, and it's cryptic enough where you really do believe that Marsh was compromised. You know, it says, like, I think the Inquisitors suspect me. I've been asking too many questions. Lots of phrases like this that make it seem like they were on to Marsh and they got him. Unfortunately for Marsh, what happens is he was showing, I guess, what they thought was potential or initiative, being interested in the Inquisitors, so they made him one. We obviously don't know that until later, but yeah. Uh, It's time to abandon all the plans. They tell Renew to use this plan that they had in place where he pretends he's abandoning the city because of the house war. He's going to send all his ships away and then double back and beat back up with the crew at this backup shop that only Kelsier and Doxon knew about. Thank goodness. And we get dark Kelsier coming out. He says, yeah. they hit me where it couldn't have hurt worse. I'm going to do likewise. And then tells the crew he'll meet back up with them in two days. AKA, I'm going to go fuck shit up. <laughs> 
He does. He does. I love this scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire book. I think one thing I've noticed about Brandon Sanderson is once you get to like the start of the the beginning of the end, really, the start of the Sanderlanch, he'll have these little scenes that are from different characters' perspectives, mm-hmm. and they don't ever come up again. So there was a scene like this in Warbreaker where those fishermen find Nightblood the sword. Yeah. We have this scene here where this character, Waylon, is crawling through the pits of Hathsin. He's thinking about, I haven't found an A-team crystal. I'm going to die tomorrow. I haven't found one. I haven't found one. And he's like running his fingers over all the rocks and crevices in the dark. And he runs his fingers over a rotting corpse. But all he can think about is like, I have to find one more crystal, one more crystal. And he finally finds one. And this is... I think where we get confirmation about how the scars happen is because you have to plunge your hand into this really sharp rock cavern full of knife-like crystals. And at the very, very back is an ATM geode. So you have to like shove your hand in and rip your skin up to collect one. And so that's how Kelsey got all the scars on his arms. And it's a great way to reveal the lore as well as... It sets the mood because you're getting a character's desperation and fear. And what it's doing is it's showing rather than telling. And having a scene like this is a great parallel of all the horrors Kelsier endured. Just for him to show up at the pits of Hatson, help liberate this prisoner as well as the others, and then have the healing closure figuratively and literally, of destroying the pits of Hatson, destroying the crystals by using Allomancy to prevent them from creating any more ATM, disrupting the wealth of the Lord Ruler and the supply chain of ATM. It's a brilliant, brilliant move. It's awesome. I love the lore behind it, that these caverns containing the crystals drip condensation filled with minerals that collect over time to create an ATM geode. Right, yeah. so it's going to take thousands of years to create any more? Hundreds, for sure. Okay. And the fact that these crystals are alimantically affected and are vulnerable to alimancy is such a full circle theme in that by using alimancy, you're destroying the thing that makes a Mistborn so powerful. Are the Pits of Hathson ever elaborated on in the sequel books? Like, do we know if... I'm trying to... I think you won't be able to answer this because of spoilers, but, like, are the Pits of Hathson, like, where the Well of Ascension was? Or, like, are they connected to anything else, do you know? There are many connections. Okay. I will not reveal. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> I... It's fine. I think this is such a great scene. I can't get over how much I love it. Kelsier finally getting his revenge, conquering his trauma, and liberating all these people, as well as hitting the Lord Ruler where it hurts, especially House Venture. It's just such an awesome revenge moment. Like, you took my family. I take this from you. I think one thing that's really great about this scene, too, is the imagery. We have this guy, Waylon, cowering 
almost to the point of losing his humanity in the darkness. And he comes up to the top and there's this powerful being illuminated by the mist. He's got this cloak swirling around him and Waylon so scared and traumatized by everything that's happened to him. Kelsier reaches his hands down to help him and Waylon shrugs away. Yeah. And we see how terrifying and powerful Kelsier can be in these moments. Even though he's here to help, he has this sort of awesome in like the awe sense power about him. I think it would like in my mind, I'm not the kind of person that plays out a whole scene when I read, but this one actually I can see very clearly like a movie in my head. Like, Oh, absolutely. It's cinematic. It's got the drama. Kelsier is like illuminated from behind. And then he's got some small internal thoughts as he's going in. So he says, you know, and so I return. And then he's thinking about if he can or can't go into the the pits. And he says, for her dreams, he could. Meaning, like, the future that Mari dreamed of, he can face his horrible past that he is terrified to face again. And then, like you said, that feeling at the very end of, like, you took my family, you tried to destroy me, it's time for me to do the same. Yes. So good. What the exact other- kind of like epic character moment you want in fantasy. It's really epic. And I appreciate, again, I'm doubling down with this, even though we talked about a moment ago of how this scene was written from another character's perspective. I find that it creates much better visualization and storytelling. Instead of it writing as, you know, Kelsier stormed over to the pits of Hatson, waylaid the guards, and destroyed the ATM. By getting another character's perspective of the horrors of the pits, trying to survive, and then, again, Kelsier appearing, being larger than life, being the Lord of the Mists, and having an almost deity-level power behind him, Mm -hmm. just creates such great storytelling and satisfying reading. I really appreciate this section so much. The last thing I want to say about it, too, because we we could wax poetic about this scene for a while. I think a lot of fantasy lately that you and I have been reading is first person. And I like how Brandon Sanderson uses third person to create these scenes from other perspectives in the way that you would see a movie. Like you could totally see Kelsier saying, like, I'm out of here, crew, see you in two days. And then you'd cut to the scene of this, like, you know, people crying and screaming and like wriggling around in the pits of Hathson and. And you're like, well, what, what, the, what is this? What's going on? And then all of a sudden we see Kelsier is there. He's killed all the guards. He's doing his thing. It just works really well as a narrative style. Yeah. So cool. Chapter 33. The blurb on this one, I'm going to make some guesses on again, even though I know I was incorrect, apparently, in the last one. (laughs) So we have Alendi talking about how they're climbing up into the mountains. He has escaped sort of the main oppressiveness of the deepness. And he does mention that he's seen this lake that's almost metallic and how he wished he had taken a sample of the waters from the lake. I'm wondering if that lake is connected to the well of ascension if the well is actually a well of water but i'm also interested maybe to see if the metallic lake has something to do with the mists like if the mists are evaporating off of that lake 
could they be doing Ooh. something? I don't know. I just like, why is the lake so particular? It seems important. Mm. And then the other part that he's talking about is the ghost mist creature that Vin starts to encounter in book two. I did get that far into the book to know that this is going to be something that comes up again later. And Alendi is saying that he's glad that other people can see this thing. So I don't know if this is like a deep ancient power that controls the mists. That's sort of my best guess for now, that there's like a, a creature that can control it or something hiding in the Well of Ascension. And when they go there, it is unleashed. Or maybe, oh, maybe this ghost thing is a protector of the Well of Ascension. And then when they go there, it attacks them. <laughs> you got to start writing some of these down. Are they bad or good? Some are very close. Some are way off. There's a mix of ideas here that are very interesting. And when you get those answered, I want to just see your reaction. Okay. Well, they're all floating around in my head. So don't worry about it. I'll remember them for when I read book two. All right. And three. Ah. Uh, but we left our characters off at such an important moment. Kelsier had destroyed the pits of Hathson, so that's a huge blow. And we pick up in chapter 33, where the rest of the crew is waiting at the backup hideout, and they don't know yet what Kelsier has done. They're just hunkering down. It's been a few days. It's a way smaller hideout, so they're all a little bit irritable that they're stuck in such a small place, and they have not been allowed to go out unless it's absolutely necessary yes and the team's very resigned at this time they think that it's over it's done that marsh had cracked that their information got leaked to the ministry and the lord ruler and now they're trying to figure out maybe what's the best plan of action to disperse and vin's very sad by this you know throughout the entire story she knew at some point the team wasn't going to be forever, but now that it might be happening, she's really sad to see them go. She's also the only one that doesn't have, well, besides Kelsier, doesn't have any other family. Kelsier now thinks he's lost both Mare and Marsh, so they're the only two members of the crew, him and Vin, who have no other family or place to go. Whereas everybody else has been taking time away from their families for this plot, so you can see why there's conflicting views about what to do now that it appears things have come to an end. And they are talking also about how much they have accomplished. Doxon reminds them that they did accomplish the house war and that they have given the Ska Rebellion a little bit to go on for the next however many years, you know. They had a major victory, even though they were all slaughtered. Exactly. But then oh, when Kelsier comes back... He finally gets to tell them, like, what extra thing he has done. And when he comes back, he is exhausted. He's haggard. Vin immediately recognizes that he is suffering from pewter drag. So she knows something big has gone on. And he reveals to the rest of the crew that he did, in fact, destroy the pits of Hathson. And there's a little explanation involved with this where... He didn't necessarily destroy the pits themselves, but while using Alamance, he destroyed the crystals that create the geodes of Atium and the Atium beads inside those geodes. So now that these crystals are destroyed, any means of manufacturing Atium are now cut off from the Lord Ruler and the Ventures. 
And Breeze is actually pretty quick to pick up on the fact that this is going to really cripple the economy and the Lord Ruler's power. But in Brandon Sanderson's annotations, he says it might actually make the Lord Ruler more powerful unintentionally because he's the only one with ATM stockpiles that we know of. We do eventually learn that his ATM stockpiles are not in the palace where everyone expected. I don't actually know where they are. I know you probably do. But right now the crew thinks that only the Lord Ruler has them, so he now has an exclusive amount of ATM, and that could make him more powerful because it will drive up the cost and the price and value of those ATM geodes and crystals. Yeah, having a monopoly on ATM is very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a powerful move, but it was a little bit of shooting themselves in the foot, potentially. Mm. I almost think Kelsier should have stolen all the ATM crystals for themselves. I guess, though, you'd have to climb through the pits to get them. Right. He used Alamancy to destroy them. Trying to find ATM. It's just too many variables, and they would send another guard contingency to try and replenish the forces that were slaughtered at the pit. So even though it was impulsive, I think it was best that he just destroyed the pits and moved on. If I can't have it, no one can. Yeah, definitely that kind of move. Yeah, I think it worked really well. So after his dramatic reveal that he has destroyed the pits, Kelsier says he needs to rest, but that he will be rejoining the group tomorrow because they have lots of planning to do. Which takes them all by surprise, obviously, because the first part of the chapter, everyone was just about ready to call it quits. Again, thanks to Kelsier, he's always that flame that ignites the blaze and reinvigors the crew that's why i think when we were talking last chapter he is such a dangerous character with dangerous ideas he is the leader of the group he can be charismatic he is getting all these ska followers if he wanted to use that power for bad he absolutely could have oh yeah his influence is too alluring to control mm-hmm. and then he also gets into the 11th medal stuff again that comes up in this chapter. Vin is asking Sazed about it. We haven't really seen a lot of Sazed in a while, honestly. But he says that he's never actually heard of the 11th medal myths, even though he's a keeper and has all this knowledge. He admits that there's a chance that maybe he just hadn't come across it, but hard to say. If you're a sacred collector of knowledge... And your job is to remember everything prior to the Lord Ruler's ascension and protect all knowledge during this millennia-long final empire. I've never heard of this 11th metal legend until Kelsier. It's a little suspicious. Are you saying that Sazed's not saying that he knows it even though he does? Or are no. you saying that Kelsier has come up with it? Or are you saying that I'm the Lord saying... Ruler specifically hid all knowledge of the 11th metal? No, I felt like the first read in consecutive reads <laughs> that it was Kelsier creating a legend. Well, I think that's what we all thought it was. But then the 11th medal actually does have allomantic abilities and powers. They do. But even when we experience what the 11th medal is... And the one thing I will say throughout the trilogy, it's not even a major spoiler, is that this metal isn't ever utilized in a way that creates a victory or has like a grand implication. 
No, it's more like the gold medal, because aren't they inverses of each other? Yeah. Right. So I think that that's why it was really important and essential as the way Brandon Sanderson built the plot with the 11th medal is that it really only worked in the situation where Vin needs it at the end of the book to understand what is going on with the Lord Ruler and who he is. Mm. It's not something that you would just use day to day. Right, where Kelsier was blowing this up to be like, I have the 11th medal. It's going to give me some sweet power that's going to allow me to vanquish the Lord Ruler. I think that's what he was hoping for originally. And Mm. then he built the myth and then he couldn't back down on it because he'd been talking this big talk about the 11th medal and using it to build Mm. his sway over people and his perceived powers. But I think what ended up happening is that what he really stumbled on is the fact that there is other alimantic metals and possible undiscovered alloys that people haven't used yet. So people thought that alimancy was kind of cut and dry. You have these X amount of metals and that's it. But there's other options out there. Right. Especially where, and I know you've gotten to this part into the second book, where if instead of it being the 11th metal, it was Duralumin, then... Right. That would have made a huge difference of implication of, okay, I have this secret weapon. It's going to allow me to have a boost in strength to do something. But unfortunately, the 11th medal isn't quite that useful. I think it almost reflects better on the characters. So Kelsier's always been loud and brash and like intense and in your face with his fighting. And even at the very beginning of the book, we saw Vin say hey, if you're going to fight an enemy that's bigger than you, you need to be strategic about it or you need to run. And we actually end up getting to the point where Vin does have to fight an enemy that's bigger than her and she has to use that exact strategy. Whereas if Kelsier had had Duralumin, I think he would have just gone in guns a-blazing and it probably wouldn't have worked. Very true. The only way to beat the Lord Ruler was to outsmart him, not be stronger than him. Mm. Well said. Thank you. Oh, speaking of which, though, they're about to face the wrath of the Lord Ruler again. There are more executions coming. And these ones are way more close to home because as the crew goes out into the streets to see what's going on, they start to realize that there's prisoner carts coming through and they see that Spook is sitting in the front of one of the carts. Yep, he's in the cart with Lord Renew. And initially the crew thinks that they were caught because the Inquisitor had broke Marsh and gotten all the information. But actually, you know, because we know that Marsh hasn't been broken, this is just the Inquisitors following Vin's scent and her signature all the way to House Renew and finally catching up with the crew. The timing-wise just looked so suspicious from them thinking that Marsh had been compromised. But now we've got Renew, we've got Spook, and all of the house servants that they had all been working closely with in those carts. And we have this really pivotal moment for our characters where Vin says, there's nothing we can do, we have to run. But Kelsier says, no, we have to help. We're not helpless, we have to do something. Yeah, Dachshund says this, which I find phenomenal from him being one of the crew without any alimantic abilities i like that we're reminded that there's something you can do even without alimancy oh i like i remember (laughs) reading that and just like 
getting so giddy and excited. I was like, all right, heist time for real. We're going to break out our friends and save the day. Yeah. He's like the Sokka of the Avatar crew. Yes. Oh, makes things happen. (laughs) He could still do something with boomerangs. Definitely. Kelsier shares a great line that really helps shape Vin for the rest of the trilogy. He tells her that you still have things to learn about friendship, Vin. I hope someday you realize what they are. That's such a cutting line. Yeah, because it's not even just like, I'm mad at you. It's more, I'm disappointed. I think better of you. And you are better. Yeah. You just need to realize it. Like, it could have been like, I understand if you don't want to fight, but try to help. Or it could have said, he could have been really mean, like, oh, you're a coward, Vin. But I think making it about the other people in the prisoner carts and not abandoning them versus saving yourself is is key for Vin's development. Plus, for most of this book, she has been fighting that fear of self-preservation and survival with learning that with great strength comes that responsibility to help others. Yes, I'm talking about The Spider-Man. power of love. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say, with uh, great power comes great responsibility theme. But... Yeah, it is true. If you have the ability to help others and you stand by and watch them befall harm, then, you know, what are you doing? Agreed. Ugh, and our group does not stand by. They get right into this fight. So we've got prisoners coming through in carts. We've got Kelsier rushing in to try to get them out. But there's a bunch of servants that show up and inquisitors. Yeah, so it's getting heavy But we're not alone in this. Ham finds a contingency of soldiers from the resistance to help aid them with trying to rescue everyone in these procession carts. Yeah, so there's a lot of people rushing in, coming in and trying to help. Breeze is also trying to help manipulate the soldiers from afar, make them feel more scared. I loved that scene. It was very much like Puppet Master. Yeah, I like how we can see him in action and not just in the subtle moments. There's Ham's unit is fighting the soldiers eventually, and Kelsier is sort of locked one-in-one with the Inquisitor. And I love that this fight is going on between them. We haven't actually seen him on screen fight an Inquisitor because... When he and Vin went to Credit Shaw, he led the Inquisitors off and we followed Vin's character. And then at the very, very beginning, he just led the Inquisitor on a wild goose chase to get away from Vin. And he didn't actually fight them. So this is the first time that we're having this reveal of what the Inquisitors can do and what Kelsier can do. And I know that this chapter cuts off before we get into the, the real meat of the battle, but it's so... Epic. Now that the Sander Lynch has begun, it is really coming. Yeah, and this is such a great boss battle. I <laughs> love it so much. Meanwhile, during all of this chaos, we find that Elend is in the mix, and he recognizes Lord Renew's cart that he's trapped in, and he's looking for Valette. And Kelsier is a little bit taken aback, he admires the fact that, you know, he cares for Valette, but also annoyed that he's in the way. <laughs> I feel like it's just another thing where, like, Kelsey's like, oh, now I have to make sure you don't get hurt because Vin cares about you, even though Kelsey wouldn't care less if Ellen got taken down. 
but yeah, he would definitely be like, "Oops, happy accident!" Like, "Oh, sorry." <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the the prisoners start to get freed. There's just absolute chaos. There's thousands of ska. There's hundreds of soldiers. There's this really condensed alimantic fight going on between Kelsier and the Inquisitor. And the Inquisitor is just absolutely ruthless with the way he fights because he knows that Kelsier is this sort of folk hero, this popular hero. And I think that they know that hurting other people would be more upsetting to Kelsier than hurting Kelsier himself. So at one point he just beheads somebody casually while Kelsier is like reeling in the fight. Yeah, he's trying to reduce collateral damage to the population, and this Inquisitor is taking enjoyment of just slaughtering bystanders in the process. One of my favorite parts and lines within this book has Kelsier downing the vials and burning the metals inside him, just as the rage is burning inside him. And he's thinking about... Oh, but he about- does this awesome, like, steel push at the same time, too, so everybody with or anything with metal is just blown back. Yes, and... Within his rage, he thinks how his brother's dead, his wife is dead, family, friends, and heroes all dead. You pushed me to seek revenge, he thought. Well, you shall have it. And it's just so epic. What a great way to end the chapter. It's such a high point. This chapter did the really good thing that I never cognizantly realized that chapters do, but you're supposed to change emotion from the beginning to the end of a chapter. So our characters were so downtrodden and about ready to give up. And now we're ending the chapter on this come at me, let's get big, let's do this fight, high energy, high octane scene. So it totally shifts us up several gears. And oh man, next time I'm so excited to talk about this battle that goes on because it is such a great display of Kelsier's prowess as a Mistborn. And we really get to see his expertise with pushing and pulling as well. I know. I can't wait to talk about it. (laughs) Oh, it's so cool. So until next time, listeners, happy happy reading. reading. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at fantasticbookspod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.